All right, good morning, friends. Let's uh, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll continue through our journey here of Paul's letter to Corinth. Uh, We're shifting gears a little bit, same context and same ideas, but a different issue. Last week we talked about uh, the Lord's Supper and when uh, people were gathering together. And so uh, the same problem is occurring with a bunch of different symptoms. Last week's symptoms were that they would get together for their love feast or what we would call our potluck. And, and what would begin to happen is that there would be people of means and they would come and they would bring their food and they would begin to eat their food and drink what they brought to drink. And then there would be people that came that did not have means. Now, we talked a little bit about the fact that slavery was massive in Rome, uh, tens of millions of slaves in Rome, and slaves were getting saved. And so a lot of times there would be uh, people coming like, that were dirt poor, didn't have control over the schedule, all those things. They'd somehow make it to gather together with the, the church there. And Paul says what happens is you guys begin to eat. You eat and you get really full. And then the poor people that are kind of basically came to be able to um, have food because they, they don't necessarily have enough at home, that they get left out. And he says that you shame them and you despise the church. You make little, you disesteem those people. And then as a, as a side effect of the fact that you had um, a lot of people eating a lot, they were drinking a lot. And so when it came to the time of the Lord's Supper, now we, when we do communion, typically we have communion as part of our service, right? It wasn't so in the early church. They, they predominantly, what we know from history and from what Paul says here to the Corinthians, that predominantly they would have it as like a, they'd be doing their potluck or their love feast and there'd be kind of this pause and there'd be maybe a word about uh, the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus, and then there'd be this communion that they would take together as kind of part of already their feast, uh, that, or their, their, their dinner or lunch that they were eating together, depending on what time they met. So uh, they were coming drunk to that place. And so the Lord says that there's, or Paul says, that the Lord was judging them, and not an eternal damnation, but there was a judgment and a discipline that was happening and it was causing some of them to become sick and to die. And we talked all about a, like, a, like a health wealth type of thing. And that's not what we're talking about. It wasn't some sort of lack of faith. It was the fact that there was a, a supernatural discipline being exercised uh, on, in, you know, in people's lives that were publicly basically tearing down or minimizing God's, the effect of his church on the earth. Right? They were turning people away. Uh, in fact, if you remember, the whole thing starts by saying, your meetings do more harm than good, right there in chapter 11. So that'd be a pretty staggering thing, I think, to hear about, uh, you know, how your church was going. So in this week, as we get into the spiritual gifts, so from 12, 13, and 14, Paul is going to talk about the spiritual gifts and being spiritual people. And we're, we're approaching it from the same context we've been approaching all of this. The fact that there is a way to walk in the Spirit and, and, and use the wisdom of the Spirit, the empowering of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives to be part of what God is doing. And then there is a way to be involved in what God is doing, but coming from a place of the flesh, that fallen nature, right? And so what's happening at Corinth, and it shouldn't be a surprise if people are willing to get drunk at church at church meetings and to deny poor people food in a corporate setting, it's not surprising that people would be misusing the gifts. Now, we'll talk about it more over the next few weeks as we go through these chapters, but there's something I think it's important that we need to understand here, and that is that that people have these gifts, and they're using them wrongly, okay? 
Meaning, it's not, it, meaning that they, they, just, they have the gifts. And they're, they're using them in a way, whether it's conscious or unconscious. We, we're not going to make commentary on that for different people in different times. But because of that, they're in this place where they're using these gifts to bring attention to themselves. And then evidently there is a, a judgment against others. And Paul goes into a whole thing about how the gifts are given out, what they're for, you know, and it's all based on the will of God. And so if you have one gift and another person lacks that gift and whatnot, it's not because you were superior or they were inferior or anything like that. And so that's one of the things that Paul's going to uh, talk about um, in detail later on. But as we jump in today, this idea of how can we be those that are walking uh, in what God has for us and in a way that God uh, would want us to do that to build up his church and one another. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 1, he says this, Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who speaks by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So Paul here is going to start off with a contrast. Now, we've talked a little bit about it before, but remember, Corinth is one of the richest. It's one of the most wealthy uh, ancient cities. It has um, incredible temples and ports and all these different things. Uh, we, we know that there was a, a temple to Aphrodite. There was a temple to Demetri. So there's these different temples that are there. And Paul draws on that to the Corinthians, and he says, you guys, at some point, obviously not to the Jewish believers that were there, but to the, the believers from Corinth and Greek and Rome and so forth that were of, of that uh, culture that are coming out of there, he says, you guys were enticed and you were led astray by mute idols, right? So he's, the, the contrast, if you, you probably see it already, is that idols are mute, but God is speaking, right? Idols are mute, but the Spirit will never say this, but this is what the Spirit says. So there's our comparison that Paul is giving. He starts by making the point that a mute idol, so an idol that had no ability to speak, no ability to communicate what it wanted, right? And we know from life experience and from the Bible and history that idols are nothing, right? That's one of the major, it's been a different context, but one of the things that Paul has addressed a few times here in, in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, we know that an idol is nothing. It has no power. It has no ability to communicate. It's just an idol. It's a thing that's made out of stone or wood or gold. And the human beings that come to it, they are the ones that give it its power, right? All idolatry is the same. All idolatry is giving effort or some giving uh, effort or monetary or some sort of sacrifice to something in order to get something from it, right? It doesn't matter what it is. If it's Aphrodite, you're giving meat or you're having sex with a temple prostitute, and that is to worship Aphrodite in exchange for crops, in exchange for more children. That's why you do it. So all idolatry works that way. And it works that way for us too. If we, if we look at our, if our job becomes this all-important thing in our life, we can look to it to fulfill us. We can look to it to, um, the, it's our sole uh, way that we get money. That, and we take God out of the equation. So what do we do? We pour everything into it because we want something back from it. That's how idolatry works. So we empower idols in our, in, in, by ourselves and, and out of ourselves more so than they empower us. Does that make sense? So that's what Paul says about idols, how we, how we treat those. 
He says, though, it's interestingly enough, that even though the idol was mute, it was unable to communicate, they, they were influenced and they were led astray. Literally, the word is they were carried away. The idol carried them away in, in some form. So all the communication that these people received from idols, they came from priestesses and priests and, and, and temple workers and so forth from these temples. So you have human beings that are sold for whatever reason. They're sold into this particular god or goddess. And then they're communicating what they, whatever they feel about that god or goddess. And they're, they're communicating what they believe to be true about that. And, and it's not from the idol. It's from the people. Now, we definitely understand that there's probably some satanic influence there and so forth. But it's the people that are doing all that. And, and those people are communicating to their pagan followers. And those followers, those followers are carried away. So that's the first part that he said. He says, I want you to know, since this is the life you've lived, you've lived a life receiving, quote, prophecies and ideas from false priests and false priestesses. He says, you need to know that those idols were mute. But he's about to go into spiritual ideas. And he says, there, therefore, so because of this truth about idols and what they're like in your life, therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking uh, by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord. So if we start with the first saying here, he says that no one by the Spirit, so the Spirit of God is leading us to speak oftentimes, right? And that happens in kind of, uh, uh, I guess you would say kind of a moral way or in a macro way on a kind of a universal scale. In other words, I don't necessarily have to consult the Spirit on how to talk to someone, do I? I there's certain things that I already know from the Bible of how I'm to speak to people. I'm to speak to people with my words seasoned with salt. In other words, that I share truth, but I do it in a way that it's palatable. They're seasoned. They're easy to digest, easy to, to eat, easy to consider, right? So that means that if I walk into a situation, even though it's common in our society to be rude and gruff and abrupt and think that if I tweet some pithy saying, I'll just own the world in some way, or I'll, they'll, they'll see truth from it or something like that, right? That's kind of how our world operates. Or if we're disgruntled with something, we say some sort of uh, brief saying that's rude, and we think, oh, that I've communicated to them. But we know, if we think through it, that that will not get what, well, we may want to just offend them, but that will not get anything that God wants from them, right? And if we offend people, if we're angry with people, we treat people poorly, we already know that. So I don't have to pray to the Holy Spirit, should I be nice to this person? Or should I just rip them and mock them for any kind of weakness I can perceive in them? Right? We, know, we know that. So then there's also kind of like hearing from God 201, like the second maybe more nuanced idea. And that's the idea that God does speak to us and lead us through his spirit to say certain things, right? to say specific things. And, and that's where we get kind of more into the idea of spiritual gifts and being led by God. But so Paul starts off by saying this. You have to understand something, that the Spirit of God will never say, Jesus be accursed. Now, different translations say different things, and, and this is widely kind of disputed and wondered. Uh, if, you, if you read uh, books about uh, the letter to the Corinthians, many people address this by not saying anything about it, uh, because it's kind of a weird statement, isn't it? That the Spirit of God, that no one by the Spirit of God will ever say Jesus is accursed, and no one without the Holy Spirit can say that Jesus is Lord. So a lot of weird doctrines have come out of this. Now, 
It could be that he's literally saying, and it would apply more to the second half of the statement, that no one who's unsaved can say Jesus is Lord. That seems so far-fetched to me. Um, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can draw upon my memory. I've definitely heard people that were not say, say something Jesus is Lord to something like that, and it wasn't some hindrance. In other words, it's not like this supernatural thing where if we were to go downtown to Long Beach right now and say, excuse me, are you a raging heathen? And they said, yes, I am. And you said, perfect. Would you please try to say Jesus is Lord for me? And they would be like, I can't say it. Okay, that's, that's not what's being said here. It's not that there's some sort of supernatural block on unbelievers' mouths and they would try to come into church and pretend to be believers and they try to say it and everybody's like, oh, I knew it, I knew it. I knew you were just some scrub. No, that's not, that's not what he's saying here. So the, the second idea is that he's saying that, and, and this would obviously apply to the very first one, that, it's, that, that the Holy Spirit will never say Jesus is a curse. We can just agree with that, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit is never going to guide someone to say those things. A curse, or the word anathema, as it's used the majority of the time in the New Testament, and there's a different Hebrew word, but the same idea in the Old Testament, typically means eternal damnation. Paul uses the same word, for example, in Galatians, where he says, if I or an angel or anyone... Come and share a different gospel with you, a different gospel than salvation is through Christ alone, through his blood alone, through his grace alone, and that he alone saves us and we contribute nothing to it. And Paul says, if anyone comes to you, or if I come to you later, or an angel comes to you later and communicates anything except that, let them be anathema, eternally condemned. That's, that's, so that's how it's typically used. So we can agree that God's spirit in us is never going to motivate us to try to tell someone, hey, Jesus is accursed. He's eternally damned. That seems a little bit basic, and, and so I, I'm not entirely convinced that's what he's saying there. But on the other side, are we saying then, anytime a person says Jesus is Lord, anytime at all, that it's a conscious motivation by the Holy Spirit? Ah, maybe, maybe. I want to throw this out there, and you can agree or disagree with me. This is kind of where I've settled on it. I was doing some reading about this because I love things that are difficult to understand, and I try to figure it out. And I'm not saying I have, but I stumbled upon something. This phrase, anathema Jesus, which is literally what it says, it doesn't, the, the Greek just says anathema Jesus, if you were to take English and, and put it into Greek. It's two words, two-word sentence. So in 1962, oh, actually it started in 1961, and they, they did an excavation on the Temple of Dimitri in Corinth. So they released their findings in 1965 in a book, and I'll give you the book if you want, or I'll show you where to get it. Uh, but they released their finding on the excavations. And what they found is pretty fascinating. It was supposed to be a three-week dig, and it turned into like, a, like 13 months. Because they found tons of pottery, tons of figurines, idolatrous figurines, and the other thing they found, and not just in the temple of Dimitri, but in other places, they found these little lead placards. They were like this big. And what they were, they found them all sorts of places. They found them in wells that were those that were supposed to be um, uh, like sanctified to that particular god or goddess. They found them in wells. They found them at the altar of, of some of these things. And what they were is they were prayers for curses on other people. And so what people would do, because it was wildly accepted that if you, uh, for political gain, for uh, sports, the Olympic Games, if you had a specific athlete that you were going to root for, that what it was very normal to do is you would bring some money or some meat to, uh, in this case, the altar uh, at the, the, the um, Temple of Dimitri, and you would take that, 
and you would, and the, the priest or priestess would take this little lead placard and they would inscribe the curse. And the curse would read something like anathema Hermes. And then the person. And the idea was that you were calling upon Hermes or Aphrodite, whoever your particular God of choice was, that you were calling upon that deity to curse this individual. So it could be that Paul is just literally saying what sounds like a very plain saying, that, hey, no one in your church by the Holy Spirit is going to say that Jesus is a loser, right? That perhaps he's actually talking, is perhaps he's actually talking about something significantly more specific that pagans would be tempted with, and that is that you cannot go to church and hire one of the pastors there to make you a little deal to curse someone you don't like. That, that nobody through the Spirit is going to say, Jesus cursed this person. That that's not what he's doing, and those aren't the messages that he has. Now, you could say, well, that's a lot of inference. It is a lot of inference. But it, to me, and again, it's an opinion. Throw it in the trash. It seems significantly more likely than Paul just saying, hey, guys, just so you know, Jesus won't actually say about himself that he's garbage. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. So whatever it is, there's the idea, again, of two different spirits. One spirit will never accurse or curse Jesus or his people, and we know that from 1 John. The other, the Holy Spirit, will always communicate in a way that Jesus is Lord. The word Lord there is kyrios, which is used quite a bit in the New Testament uh, for the word Lord. But it's not just like if you go to England and, or Scotland and you have lords of the land or something like that. It's the idea of master, the Lord of lords. That's what the Greek word is for. It's not a, a Lord among lords. It's the Lord. And so the, whatever the Spirit is doing is speaking from a place that will always glorify Jesus. So when we break that down, because we're about to go into prophets, right? The whole context here is working with one another. It's not just an intellectual ascent that he's giving to the Corinthian people. It's all about, it's the introduction to how we speak to one another, how we relate to one another. And it really boils down to this. Jesus will never call upon you by his spirit to curse another person or him. That will never be of Jesus. In fact, the Jesus Spirit will always motivate us to walk and to speak in a way that shows that he's Lord, right? So if we go back to this idea of how I'm inter interacting, and pretty soon we'll talk about gifts too, but we go back to this idea that gifts fundamentally dictate, or maybe not dictate, but um, guide how we interact with people and one another at church, right? And so knowing that, I can know for myself, and let's take that one to real heart, and then maybe apply it to someone else exactly how his spirit is going to work. In other words, if you were to walk in and there's someone at church and they shake your hand, they say, you're a great person, and they shake the next person's hand, the Lord told me, you're a dirty, rotten, you know, garbage person. You can know that that was not a word from God. That was not a word that built that person up. It was not a word that helped that person. It's not a word that's going to bring repentance. It's just a self-serving, self-gratifying word. So this is important when we lay this foundation to understand that Paul's saying mutes or dumb idols, they, their priests and priestesses, they said whatever they want, whatever they felt. He says, but that's not how we act. We know there's certain things that God has called us to and certain things he has not called us to. And so as the gifts work out these things, as they work in our, uh, amongst us, I should say, that they will have a certain uh, nuance and message to them that's always going to be that Jesus is the Lord. And it will always be under that banner of what, as Lord, what he wants, right? Which is the building up and the help of 
each of us to help one another and be part of what God is doing to build his kingdom, right? To build one another up, to edify each other. Now, is there correction and edification? Sure there is. If you see somebody acting completely wildly, are you just going to come up to them and the Lord's just going to say, I'm really glad you're doing that? Of course not. But it's going to be in a way that we approach people and we say, I want the best for you, and I see this going on in your life, and I've really prayed it through, and I want to help you with that, right? And so that's going to be the heart that we might share something like that and not just weird prophecies that we shoot off at the mouth and offend people. That's not what God is doing. Verse 4. <clears throat> now he's going to give us a, it's a second portion of his, uh, his uh, intro to the gifts. And it's something that we have a, oftentimes as humans have a hard time with. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. So three different phrases that have different, um, somewhat different meanings, but they all say the same thing. They communicate the same idea. I think one of the hardest things for human beings is difference, right? We all have ideas. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. A lot of our bad ideas, we don't know are bad ideas because we've grown up with them, we've believed them. And so when we see other people exercising other ideas that aren't our ideas, we go, those are bad ideas. And we don't like that. As in a very minor level, when I was uh, a couple years ago, I got the opportunity to go to France. And I was at France, and I was sitting at this table, and the person that I was with, there was like, I don't know, 10 people there because French don't do anything without 10 people there. And so we're there, and uh, it's, it's really wild, the differences. So when you go to like a dinner party, you go and you greet every single person. Like shake their hand, ask them how they're doing. It takes 45 minutes to arrive, and it takes 45 minutes to leave, right? And so that's how you do it in France. Because they, they look at it as personal interaction is what's important, right? In America, we're like, hey, and you just walk to where you're going, right? <laughs> I'm here, you're welcome, and then you go, you sit down, right? And then you might say hello to a few people or whatever, and on your way out, you're like, bye, and you leave, right? And we look at it as, I'm not going to waste your time saying goodbye. You know I'm leaving. There's no reason for us to have a dialogue about it. You know I'll be back someday unless I'm killed. I don't need a big thing, right? So we have different ways of looking at things. So if you go to France, another example, if, when I was there, if you don't put your elbows on the table, they think you're not interested in what you're saying, Right? In America, we're like, don't put your elbows on the table. It's rude, because clearly forearms are offensive. Why would you ever do that, right? <laughs> you know, and it's just, but in, in, in France, if you don't do that, if you're kind of reserved, you're sitting back and kind of eating your food, they literally won't talk to you, which we would perceive as very rude. But they don't talk to you because they perceive that you don't care what they have to say. Because if you did, you would lean forward and eat like a normal person, right? That's how they look at it. So here we have two different customs, two different ways, and they're absolutely fine, right? But, but the difference makes us to make judgment calls of someone's heart. Well, you're not talking to me at dinner because you're rude. Well, you're not, I'm not talking to you because you're rude, right? Nobody's actually rude. You're just sitting there eating in the way that you grew up of how to eat. So Paul's making a very similar point about spiritual gifts. Because certain people have certain spiritual gifts that we don't necessarily have, we don't have experience with, we may not think are valid, whatever reason. And so Paul, the first thing he says is this, the first point about it is this, 
There are different kinds of gifts. So some of you guys may be incredibly organized, right? And, and you can organize things to a T, and you have a, a sheet, and it's got check marks on it, and you just handle your business, and that's really great, right? And then other people have no checklist, no checks. They kind of glide through life, and yet somehow stuff gets done. And the two drive each other crazy, don't they? One just has a gift of grace. It's like, eh, whatever. And the other person is the person that you go to when you need something to get done, right? So we can look at those people, and we can, you can measure, like, the, like if, if, you're a, if you're a gifted person at being organized and making things happen, the, the, the person who's, like, you know, not that way, they may look at that and go, you are so restricted. How do you possibly live by a list? You're a legalist. That's crazy. How do you have room for the Holy Spirit? And the person with the list goes, well, the Holy Spirit gave me the list. And I just used the list that the Holy Spirit gave me by divine revelation to do the things that he's called me to do, right? So you have two different perspectives, and both are incredibly valid, right? And so he says, look, there's different giftings, but it's still the same Holy Spirit working in each person. So the person with the list, they just get the revelation at the point of listing. The person without the list, they apparently get revelation all the time. So it's, it's one of those things where it doesn't matter, does it? But we can look at that if we don't have the gift of administration and say, you're so bound up. You, just, you need to live a little. But living a little for that person will like murder them, right? It'll create anxiety and difficulty and fear. And if you say to the person who's more kind of, I don't want to, there's no negativity to it, kind of more free or open with their stuff, if you say you need to make a list and do this, you will make them feel confined. You'll make them feel legalistic. You'll make them feel like they're, they're not really acting in what God has for them, right? So, so there's, it's this, there's different gifts. And we have to admit, there's a gift in someone who can make a list, check it twice, and then get everything figured out. And you can go, what a relief it is to be able to go to that person and go, what's on the list? I'll do that, right? There's also an incredible gift around being somebody who like everything's burning to the ground around them. And they're like, eh, we'll get it figured out, right? There's comfort in both of those things. So he says it's the, there's different gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. One gift is not from Satan and one gift is not from God in that context. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. So the first one, the spirit, is like inspiration, right? It's the spirit distributes, inspires us to do those things. The second one is based on authority. So there's different kinds of service. There's different kinds of helping and doing, right, where you're actually serving someone. There's different ways to do that, but it comes from the same authority. So the first one is the spirit inspires or the spirit leads, guides each person. The second idea is that each person with their giftings, it was given to them to be exercised upon the authority of God. And this should generate a little bit of concern in us for one another, that I don't want to mess with your gift. I don't want to question your gift. I don't want to question what you're doing. If it's weird or funky and it's somehow, you know, if it's breaking rule number one or two that the Spirit of God never says Jesus or his people to be cursed, then maybe we can step in and say, that's, I, I don't see how that works out. You know, you're doing this to people or you say it's for people, but it's really hurtful. If you just walk around like a bull in a china shop trying to give people what you think their deficiencies are, that's going to be really harmful on an individual level and on a level of your, your church body, right? So if somebody comes to you and says, you're really rough. Have you ever thought about maybe dialing it back and, 
and praying through who you should tell their deficiencies to and who you should not do that to, or maybe wait for a right time to do that as the Lord leads you, something like that. So we, we acknowledge that not only are these gifts inspired by the Spirit, but that it's upon the authority of the Lord. Verse 6, there are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, this is the idea of spiritual energy, the, the Greek word there. So the, the, you have inspiration or guidance, and then you have authority. And now he says that there's tons of different working. There's a way that God is working. But in every person that's doing that work, that God is working, every one of them has the same God at work. It's the same power, the same strength being given to every single person that's operating in their gift the way they're operating in it. Does that make sense? So first, in his introduction, Paul says, this is how you were living. This is the difference. Right? You were living by mute idols, and this is how their priests and priestess spoke to you. And in the second part of that, he says, but you know, this is what God is not going to do or say, and this is what God is going to do or say through his spirit, through you. Then the second part is this. There's different kinds. There's a whole variety of people, and there's a whole variety of gifts. And so it's not for us to try to measure or judge or change people's gifts. Oh, you're like that? You should be like that. Is there wiggle room if, you know, if somebody's completely uh, organized and they refuse to deviate from that? then yeah, there might be some wiggle room to say, hey, I know like you know, using the restroom wasn't on the list, but you might want to think about doing that. It becomes unpleasant for the rest of us if you don't, you know, or whatever. If somebody's way too airy and like, oh, everything's just all good, you might say, yeah, I appreciate that, but you should still put gas in your tank because it really sucked when we ran out of gas. You know, so there's ways that, that you can you know, wiggle room for those things to help one another, but not to measure the gift or dictate the gift or something like that. Does that make sense? And it's really helpful to also, in those situations where you think something might be amiss, to pray about it, to wait. Lord, what do you have? Instead of just blurting out a word of correction or blurting out something you don't like or I don't like, or you know, that's rarely ever helpful. It's usually significantly more helpful to be reserved, to take a moment, pray it through, maybe take a week or two weeks or three weeks or four weeks or whatever, and then come back because there's no rush, right? Because you're, you're, you're trying to help one of the Lord's servants. So unless it's a dire thing, somebody's about to, to make a decision that's going to you know, end society as we know it, we can probably wait and just, and just wait on the Lord, pray it through. And it's incredible the kind of wisdom and encouragement that God will give you to be able to move forward and actually be the blessing that hopefully we, we want to be, right? Verse 7, now he's going to begin to talk about individual gifts, and in this way it's called, they're called manifestations, which is the idea that the Spirit manifests himself, right? So he says, verse 7, now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Now, again, an introductory statement, and this is important. One of the things that, that is happening here, and we, we touched on it, is people are beginning to use their gifts to draw attention to themselves. Now, again, is it intentional? Is it malicious? Maybe. Or is it unintentional? Uh, that's one of the interesting things about our own uh, pride and, um, uh, what's another word, self-centeredness. We, oftentimes, we don't realize that we're self-centered because we're self-centered. Right? Self-centered in the, its very idea is that you focus as your, on yourself as the center of, whatever, of whatever's going on. So in other words, like if you watch the news, if you're like most human beings, many times your first thought is, how will this affect me? Me, me, me. And then later on you might go, oh, other people might be affected too. Right? So when we're self-centered, 
when we're focused on ourselves, and if we're acting in that way, which seems congruent with not giving food to poor people that are sitting right in front of you at a church meeting while you're eating, if we're self-centered, whether it's malicious or unmalicious and just being self-centered, he says you need to understand something about your gifts. They're not for you. They're for the common good. This is a foundational idea really for church, for Christians in general. And that is that, yes, there is a, a, if, if I can use the word, a selfish part of our salvation isn't there. That we are glad that we are personally saved. I am glad for that I'm saved. I'm glad that Christ has had mercy on me. I have, and hopefully you do too, I'm sure you do, a personal life with Jesus, right? Where I talk to him and I say, this is, I don't know what to do about this. And I don't know what to do about that. And what do you think about this? And, and in times of worship to say, well, thank you so much. How kind you've been to me. Right? So there is a personal aspect of that. But the vast majority of our lives, because the way he's designed human beings and the way he's designed his church, the church being the, the Greek word ekklesia, the called out gathering, that we're not here to serve ourselves. Not even a little bit. We're here to be encouraged, yes. We're here to be uh, uh, spoken to and, and hopefully built up by others, Yes. But your giftings are here for the common good. And my giftings are for the common good. We're here to help one another. In other words, when we walk through the doors of church, it's not just, what can I get? Do they have the right worship? Is this guy going to talk too long? Is this guy going to talk too short? Is he going to, you know, whatever. Is it going to be too heady? That's not an issue with me. Is it going to be whatever it might be? We say, well, is this guy going to be? That's the wrong way to look at it. Now, we're going to have preferences at churches, and it's fine to choose a church based on a preference as God leads you, right? If you feel you're being built up there and whatever, but we're here to contribute. We're here to say, how are you doing? And then do this crazy thing, not talk about ourselves. How can I help you? What's going on in your life? And then someone might ask you, well, how are you doing? And you can say, oh, yeah, things are okay or things are not okay. I appreciate prayer about this in my life. I'm just kind of a loser and I'd like to not be, or, you know, whatever it might be, that you express and say, hey, I, I want this change. I want to be more like Jesus, right? So in, this, in the realm of spiritual giftings, there's ways that we're going to operate and they will bless us, but ultimately they're there, the, the, the gifts are there for the common good of people. And there's, we'll talk more about that later on another Sunday, but if that's how things really work, and the scripture says that is, then what does it mean if in my life, not just church, church is not the only venue to serve or use your gifts by any means. It's just a good place because there's a lot of broken people at church, right? Like all of us. So if, if, I can, if I can then move forward in using my gift, whether it's a church or somewhere other place, to have the foundation to know that, man, I, I can contribute. I don't know. There's a lot to be said there. But anyway, I don't want to get too far ahead. Verse 8. To one, now he's going to go into individual ideas. There is uh, given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. So he's going to continue with the theme of unity, the theme of, of origin, right? A unification of origin, that the origin is always of God in these gifts. But there's two different ways in this sense that it's manifested or that it's seen, it comes out. The first one, he says, is a word or a message of wisdom. And, and the, the, different translations have a different word for message. Some say a word of wisdom. It's, the word there is it's the derivative of logos, which is like you know, John 1, in the beginning was the word, the logos, the expression of a thought is what it is. So he says that one manifestation that the Spirit is working in someone is that they will share a miraculous word of wisdom. It's not something just like, hey, don't play on the freeway. 
It's more of you have like a given situation, stuff's going on, and then someone shares something, and everybody in the room just goes, that's exactly what we should do, right? Because there's knowledge and wisdom, and forgive me for being repetitive, but, but knowledge is just knowing something or having understanding, and wisdom is properly applying that understanding, right? So if I know a stove is hot, wisdom says I don't touch it, right? So because knowledge doesn't always save us. A lot of times we have tons of knowledge, we ignore it, we don't exercise wisdom, and then we get ourselves hurt. So in this case, he says that, you're, that the spirit can move in someone's life, in someone's heart, their mind, and all those things, I think, get engaged, and they share something that's, that's directly from the Holy Spirit, and, and there's this, this agreement. And I've been in meetings before, and you've probably experienced it too, where someone shares something, and you're just like, that is exactly what I needed to hear. That is exactly how I need to act in the situation I'm wondering about. That is exactly what I think God wants for me, right? It's a word of wisdom. The second idea is a word of knowledge. Now, a word of knowledge is exactly what it sounds like, or a message of knowledge. It's not intuition. It's not, I, I observe something, and then I think I can figure out what's going on. It's a miraculous word of knowledge that God gives an individual. And maybe you've experienced that, or maybe you've experienced it in someone else. But, re, but again, it's not a word of miraculous knowledge so that we can condemn someone, Right? So we can trash someone, so we can leak it to the press or whatever we want to do or put it on Facebook. That's not what it's for. It is so that you can help someone. So someone might be dialoguing with you and, and God gives you this, this, for some reason you just know this is going on in this person's life. And you could take a second and say, hey, hey, I have a weird question for you. Are you kind of wrestling with this? And what I've found in my experience is that when that happens, whether giving or receiving, the person genuinely isn't like, you shut up! They're usually, because God often, if not always, works on the other side of a spiritual gift also, usually it's, the, it's met with incredible relief. And that person says, yeah, it is going on. And I've been trying to beat it, and I can't. Or I've been trying to do this about it, and I can't. Or I feel stuck, or whatever it is. And then through this word of wisdom, I mean, through this word of knowledge, you're able then to say, well, I just want to help. Is there a way I could help you? Is there a way I could be part of the solution for that for you? Is there a way that you don't... So, Again, it's not like, thus saith the Lord, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. That's not a word of knowledge. That's, that's from Satan. I'll tell you that right now. Because there's not a one of us in here that's not a dirty, rotten sinner. So there's no reason to really share that all the time with people as some sort of revolution or, or, or a revelation, I should say. But it's more along the lines of, is this going on in your life? I, I want to help you with that. So that, that's how the Spirit is going to work through in that. So you can see how these gifts might be given, how God's giving opportunity to some of these Corinthians, and then they're misusing that. Because if you got a word of knowledge, people try to use certain secret knowledge, whether it's secret or not, to manipulate and to get personal gain all the time, right? I mean, that's like what we do in our society. If you have some sort of knowledge that someone else doesn't, if you're wrong-hearted about it, you use that for personal gain. And so we can see here how the same thing could, could begin to happen. He's going to go on in verse 9. says, To another, faith by the same Spirit, and to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. So two more that he gives us in verse 9. Now, a gift of faith. Now, is he talking about salvatory faith? No, he is not. Why can we say that? Number one, we can say that because that is not even remotely our context either. The context is when you get together and you're at church, we're using the term at church, but when you're gathered together as a body of believers and you're, <clears throat> excuse me, being led by the Spirit, and the Spirit's wanting you to help build each other up. That's our context. Our context is not how a person gets saved. If you try to 
take this and say it's talking about salvatory faith, then what you're saying is, and it's a very popular doctrine right now, that essentially that God does something in someone's life and just gives them faith. So they don't believe, they don't care, they're not into Jesus, and then it's a gift of faith. And they're like, oh, Jesus is legit, I'm in. That takes away any kind of free will, any kind of free choice, any kind of anything like that. And it's, 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 if you want to research more about that, it's the idea of, of Calvinism. And uh, we love our Calvinist brothers and sisters, right? We're not trash-talking them. But at the end of the day, uh, we can, you guys believe whatever you like. And I mean that sincerely. But at the end of the day, the way as a church and myself we look at it, the reality is God is sovereign, right? But he sovereignly chose to give man a choice. If you take that choice away from man, then anything that Jesus had to say about whosoever will may come is just not true. Jesus can't say whosoever will may come if a person actually doesn't get to come unless Jesus makes it so they can come. And, and how is there a legitimate offer of salvation if, someone, if God just sovereignly says no? It's literally like this. It'd be like if I took my two daughters, who I love very much, and I said, I love you guys very much, but here's the thing. You've got to understand, I'm sovereign. And what I choose for you will bring me glory. And I want to bring you to Disneyland. But I'm going to lock the car doors. And if you can get in the car, I will bring you to Disneyland. But if you cannot get in the car, I will punch you in the face and judge you for being losers. Right? And I will punish you for not getting in the car. And then I say to one daughter, here, let me unlock the door and let you in. I let her in, I close it, and I lock it. And I say, daughter A, you have gotten in the car, and we will go to bliss eternally to Disneyland. Right? But then I say to daughter B, you didn't get in the car. And I'm sovereign, and it gives me glory, and now I will judge you. You're eternally cast away from me. Now worship me. Right? You would go, you're sick. You're a freak. But for some reason, because of certain verses that I think get misinterpreted in a very real way, people, in some respect, in a desire to glorify God and his sovereignty and power, that's what they say. But to me, personally, it's, it's, it really robs who he is, that Christ did not have a limited atonement, that his blood was shed for every individual, that all sin was forgiven in Christ, and that anybody who wants to appropriate that has the, the power and the right to do it because God said so, and not some sort of weird um, judgment for not being able to make a decision <clears throat> or being robbed of that decision, I should say. So the gift of faith is not salvatory faith. The gift of faith, more along is the idea, and this is a little bit nebulous, and different people have different ideas. How I've observed it is I think a lot of times when God calls us to exercise one of our other gifts, specifically maybe one that we're not familiar with, God might say, hey, I'd like you to go and, and, and share this with someone, or hey, I'd like you to share that with someone, and we go, no way. They'll think I'm crazy. They'll hate me for that. They won't want to do that. A lot of times what happens is that God calls you to some sort of ministry that he gives a person that faith that, that, can, that, that being convinced, yes, God is going to do something great in this. See, one of the key things about faith is trying to have faith is good, but it's not actually faith. Whereas having faith is faith. You know, that, that's pretty self-explanatory. But I don't think it is. See, there's times in our life where we say, 
We struggle, and it's a good struggle. So we're not, we're not negating it. We're not saying anything bad about it. We struggle. We say, I'm going to believe God through this, right? And we get up in the morning, and whatever we're going through, if it's a physical ailment, if it's a, a financial ailment, or an emotional ailment, or a relational ailment, whatever it is, and we go, I'm going to trust God today. And we get into the scriptures as we should, and we read, and we cast our cares on him because he cares for us, and we put you know, verses up on our fridges and all that. That's great. That's good stuff. That's trying to have, it's kind of like having foundational faith and trying to build on it. It is exercising some faith, for sure. But the gift of faith is the idea that you just, it's not even a struggle. You say, heck yeah, this is happening. God's doing this. I, I, there's just no part of me. When I think of things like, you know, it's, it's only like a month or 40 days between when Peter heals that dude that's uh, uh, unable to walk. And he, remember, he's going to the temple for prayer. They're in Acts 3 or 4, whatever it is. And he says, the guy looks at him to get money, and Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. As an inference, what would it take for you to do that? Honestly, put yourself in the situation. You just told some little slave girl 40 days ago, I don't know the guy. I do not know who Jesus is. You looked right at him when you said it. I have no idea who that guy is. I don't care, he's a Galilean. We have nothing in common, right? 40 days goes by, you receive the Spirit. All of a sudden, you're walking into the temple to pray, and this guy looks at you, and you're just supposed to heal him. How many of us would really be comfortable in front of everybody going into the temple to pray to be like, okay, rise up and walk? I would be scared to death. What if he doesn't rise up and walk? What if I just go, well, thunk? In the name of Jesus is powerful, right? It, would, it takes a real amount of faith, a belief to say, this is actually what God wants me to do, even though I punked him 40 days ago and told everybody I don't know him and I don't care about him, right? So the, the gift of faith is the idea that God gives a person supernatural faith in a moment or in an event where they just go, yes, God is doing this. And that's usually something that other people around that person can draw upon, isn't it? Isn't it encouraging when you're lost and worried or wondering and someone's like, no, 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 it's going to be fine. It'll be fine. What encouragement that is, huh? The next one, he says this, uh, uh, to, to another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. And just to point this out, Every single time healing is mentioned in the, in the New Testament, gifts of healing is mentioned, I should say, in the New Testament, it's always in the plural. And, and why do I bring that up? Because what people, some, and this, this might get me in some hot water, but just roll with me. You'll meet people who mean well, and they love Jesus. And they'll say something like this, God's made me a gifted healer. All right, and so, are, you know, and, and people, oftentimes churches will invite those people, and it's fine. I'm not mocking that. But what happens is there's a dynamic that's never supported by the Scripture. Only Jesus is the only person who's ever titled healer in the Bible. Everybody else just receives gifts of healing. Now, can Jesus use the same person to heal people? Sure he can. But as soon as you move from saying, hey, sometimes I've exercised gifts of healing Maybe I could pray for you, and let's see what happens. When you move from that to, let's have a special Wednesday night church where everybody comes and I heal them, because I'm a healer, is something very different. So if you go to a place 
or you go to somewhere to get healed, right? I remember years and years ago, there was a man that came here. He's a great guy. I, I liked him. Uh, he goes somewhere else now. Uh, but he, one day, I, he came here during the week, and we were talking about something. I don't remember what it was. And I had a cold. And he said, he said you know what, God, I'm, he's made me a healer. Can I heal you? And I was like, sure. I don't like having colds. I'm in. And so he prays for me, and I'm like, all right, cool. And, and you know, I still congested, but I thought, you know, maybe it takes some time. It's like Tylenol. We'll see what happens here. And, and I didn't get healed. I had a cold for like three more days. And I never talked to him about it because I don't want to be rude about it. But one of the things he told me is God's never not healed someone that he prayed for. So in that situation, we have to answer some questions, right? So did my faith fail? I'm open for that. I'm not a man of great faith. I'm open for that. My faith could have failed. I don't think that's really how it works, but we could, that's a possibility. Did his faith fail? Did he pray for me without enough faith? He didn't muster enough faith for me, and so it just, just failed. So was it his fault? Was it my fault? Is, was it just too big of a cold for Jesus? Like it made it to my chest, and he was like, mm, I'm good on the head stuff, but once it's down here, antibiotics alone, you know? That doesn't seem probably logical, right? Um, or was I just fine to be sick, and I live in a broken world where there's sickness? So as soon as you move to a place where you say, God always does this, and this is who I am, it's dangerous. That's all I'm saying. Because the end of statements like, God always heals the people I pray for, I'm a gifted healer, the end of that is when it doesn't happen, somebody failed. It's either the prayer, the prayee, or Jesus. And none of those are good ideas, are they? So we want to be careful every single time. It's always gifts of healing, that God gives people gifts of healing. And so we want to appropriate that when we're considering what's going on and and, and people that we love, and that's cool. God uses you a lot to heal people. I'm not going to argue with that. But we're, you know what, we're not prophets. We're not healers. We're not knowledge sharers. We're not wisdom havers. We're human beings that are filled with the Holy Spirit. And as we respond to God in positive ways, he will give us gifts to use and to bless other people with. That's what we are. The the power and the gift is always through Jesus and through his Holy Spirit. Okay, verse 10. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. So miraculous powers, for example, Paul... um, he, it, I don't know why it worked. The, the, the scripture is very silent about it. There's one little phrase that people would uh, take like, thing, like rags that, that Paul had wiped his sweat with. I don't know who thought of this or how it came about. And they would touch it and they were healed. That's something the Bible talks about. So God gave Paul the power, or at least the dynamic, he used Paul probably to give merit to Paul's message in the early church that if you touched his sweat rag, you got healed. So I don't know. I guess you have to be pretty bad off to be like, yeah, I'm in, you know, whatever. But so Peter's shadow healed people, right? So some people had and some people do at times possess miraculous powers. In those cases, though, they were to bring, that was a, there was a, how would you put it? There was a, it was a non-historical precedence for the validity of Christianity. Does that make sense? So they were trying to show Jews that the Spirit was with people that were preaching the gospel of Jesus, and it was no longer about sacrifice. And they were showing Gentiles that their mute 
pagan idols had no power, whereas these men and women of faith in Christ did have power. And so there were miracles that were being exercised. Every spirit, or excuse me, every, every gifting by the Spirit is all designed to bring glory to God and to what Jesus did at Calvary. And anything beyond that is a misuse. So some had prophecy, and again, that's the idea of sharing not just, uh, you know, tomorrow morning your car won't start or something like that, predicting the future. It's the idea of giving a proper word at a proper time. Can it be predictive of the future? It can be, but it's way more along the lines of, of someone shares something with you and encourages you and, uh, and in some way and may give you some guidance. That's the idea of prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. Again, it's not intuition. It's not observance. It's a supernatural insight where, where the Lord reveals something to a person. The person you're talking to, this person is really for you. Or the person you're talking to is not speaking from my spirit. What they're doing is not of me. And so there's a supernatural uh, uh, perception that happens in a conversation or in uh, uh, you know, some sort of interaction with a person where you say, this is, you're not of the spirit that you say you are. Uh, and so there's a, there's a check there. Again, is that to bring condemnation and be like, you dirty rotten? No. It's to help and to build up. And so when someone says something to you and God shows you, like, this is not from a good spirit, you can maybe help that person and say, wow, you know, all you do is complain. That's not of Jesus, right? The Scripture tells us we shouldn't complain. The Scripture tells us that we should be kind, that we should be, when we share words, we share words that always build someone up. So there's a good, there's a good idea there. Whenever someone walks away from you or me, they should always walk away built up. They should always walk away with hope. They should always walk away with hope being expectation that God will work. They should always walk away with, with uh, uh, encouragement that everything's going to be okay, or at least you, you tried, right? That's how people should walk away from us. They shouldn't walk away discouraged. They shouldn't walk away maligned. They shouldn't walk away great doubt, right? That's not, that's not the spirit of God if that's what, what people are coming away with from us. He goes on there, and to still another Oh, I'm sorry, uh, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to a, still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one, of, of the one and the same Spirit, and distributes them to each one just as he determines. So he ends this portion of, of the scripture by saying this, that there's, there's tongues and there's interpreting tongues. Now chapter 14, uh, there's different examples in the scripture of what speaking in a tongue is. And depending on what your Christianity has been like up to this point, or what you've watched on TV, or movies, or whatever, will determine, uh, in large part, what, you, uh, what, what that means to you, what, what, that, what, what object that brings up into your mind. So, on the day of Pentecost, if we were to go back to when the Spirit fell on the 120, the men and women that were praying together, or it doesn't say they were praying, they were just there, in, the, in this room... The Spirit falls upon them, and, and there's like the tongues of fire and all that. And then they go out. There's this huge rushing wind that causes this huge noise in Jerusalem. So they go out onto like the, the porch or possibly the roof. Most buildings had a, had a, uh, a flat roof. And the, the sound of the wind causes all thousands of people to come to this one house. And then from that one house, that all the people in there, they begin to speak in tongues. But we know from the effect, what they were speaking were tongues that every, they were languages that, that other people knew. Because the testimony of people that were rushing to hear what that sound was is, all these people speak and know our dialects. 
but they're all Hebrews. Like, how is this happening? So there's this time and place where there's this miraculous thing that God did where all these people were able to speak in a different language. And there's like 10 different languages that are being spoken all of a sudden. And they all hear it, and so they're shocked by it. And it's this incredible testimony. They hear the gospel. Some people respond well. Some people don't. And the church is born. 3,000 people get saved. So that is an example of where God gave literal earthly languages to people. Then we have this other idea, which is, I think, probably more prominent in Christianity, and maybe because it's a little bit more startling if you're not uh, uh, accustomed to it, and that is the idea of speaking in like an, a prayer language. And some people call it an angel language, and they do that based on the fact that Paul says if I, in chapter 13, if I pray with the tongue of angels or, or if I pray with the tongue of men, right? So that's why it kind of gets called that. Uh, I, I don't know if that's accurate or not. You decide and, and let me know. But so when praying in, the, in the, the heavenly tongue or an angelic tongue, it says that nobody else understands it. So in chapter 14, Paul's going to make this, this big point about that kind of a tongue, that someone who's speaking, which might sound a little bit like gibberish to us, or we're not going to understand it. Gibberish might be insulting. I, I didn't mean that. But just in a way that, that we don't understand, we're not going to be edified by that. We're not going to understand it. It's not going to build us up. We're going to go, okay, cool. Uh, at best, and at worst, we're going to be like, get away from me, right? So Paul makes in chapter 14, he, he makes a statement. He says, I wish that you all spoke in tongues. But he says, in a church meeting, I would rather say five words with my mind and my understanding than 10,000 with a tongue if there's no interpreter. In fact, he goes on in chapter 14, and he forbids. He says, if someone speaks in a tongue in your public meeting and someone doesn't immediately stand up and give an interpretation, you tell that person to sit down and not talk again. So when he says that there's a gift of tongues and interpretation, it's still tongues by itself edifies the person who does it. Tongues with an interpreter has the opportunity to edify those around them. And so the, the point of the gift of tongues, if it's used in a public meeting, is strictly to be a testimony that two different people were led by God to give a message and a confirmation that he's, he's working and moving. Does that make sense? I don't know why, but I thought we were going to do the whole chapter today. I, I thought we were on it. Uh, anyway, so that's our, our, our beginning. Now, Paul, in the next section we cover next week, he's going to talk about uh, a little bit more about this idea that, hey, we're, we're a corporate body and, and how we can get along and move with one another uh, in an ideal of love and building up and how the, the, the gifts will help do that. So hopefully this has been a, a, a worthy introduction so that we can begin to look at and consider the gifts of the Spirit, uh, that they haven't ceased they're not over with, but they're always to be done in a way where we build up each other. And as soon as we move out of that mindset and out of ways, you know, exercising them in ways that we know will encourage people and help people, we've moved away from what God has called us to as individuals. Because our goal is to always build each other up. It's to always give each other hope. It's to always help each other to see more of Christ and be more like Christ. Are there hard, hard words to share sometime? Absolutely. But they're hard, hard words in love and in care, right? And so uh, what do we go away with today? We go away with this, that you have a gifting. You have one, if, at least one. God has given you something that you can use to bless the people around you. And some of it may seem more kind of earthly in the sense of like, oh, maybe I'm a great organizer or maybe I never feel stress or you know, whatever it is. 
And some of them may be more manifestation-ish in the sense that they happen one day, but maybe not the next. But the reality is God has and wants to use you, not in a bad way, right? Not in a way where you're just used up and you're just cast away, because that's, that's how we get used by people. But he wants to use you in a way where the doing of his very calling actually builds up and encourages and strengthens. It gives you life. Jesus put it this way. If you seek to save your life, if we neglect our gifts and we neglect those around us that we're called to use them with, then we will lose our life. What we were trying to protect by saying no to God will be taken from us. We will be a shell. We will wonder, why am I depressed? Why am I anxious? Why am I hopeless? Why am I aimless? Why am I confused? Because God is trying to implant and to do great things, and we're saying no to him. And he's not rude about it. He says, okay, if that's how you want to roll. If, if you're not interested in my kingdom, you can do that. It's not going to pan out for you in this life, probably not the next either, not, not a threat of hell, but just to have nothing, to stand before Christ and literally say, yeah, I did nothing because I thought it would be better to not because I had all these great things that were super more important than anything you were doing. I, I don't think that'll work out for us. So we have this opportunity instead to save our lives meaning experience fullness and goodness by laying down the very things that we think are so precious that are just of us. They're just natural. And to move forward in something like that and to experience the goodness of God in a kind of an, an intimate way of potter and clay. And then also, if, you know, if there's people here tonight that, or today that don't know Christ, he's the God who speaks. See, all the idols of this world, they're crazy, they're mute. We make up stuff to say about them. Oh, that'll take care of you. Oh, you'll be fine if you, if you do that. Oh, serving that or devoting your life to that, you'll be good. Oh, we make, it'll make you feel good. It'll make this, it'll make that. Casting off all restraint in your life is what will make you feel truly free. It does not, does it? It does not at all. It makes you feel lost. And that's the sin inside of us. If you don't know Christ today as your Savior, he's still speaking. He shed his blood for you. That's what the cross is about. It's not about religion. It's not about being a tryhard. It's about experiencing the forgiveness from your immorality, my immorality, that we know is trapped in our hearts. And we've never been able to get rid of it. And, and, and because of that, God says that one day there'll be judgment for that because he's just. He's loving and he's just as a creator. So he will judge those who reject the one thing that he gave for us to receive for forgiveness, and that is the sacrifice of his son the blood of Christ. So if you don't know Christ today, cry out to him. Admit to him, I need that. I need that forgiveness. And it's amazing because the resurrected Jesus who rose from the dead 2,000 years ago is alive and well and ministered to you right now. Whether you're just crying out to be saved, not just, but whether you're crying out to be saved or whether you're crying out because you have no idea what to do with your life, but you know he's got something for you. Just come pray with us. Or pray by yourself. There's nothing magical about us. But pray. Seek him out. The scripture clearly says, and it'll be the testimony of every Christian, that he's never left us or forsaken us. That he has never done us wrong. And by crying out to him, you will only find benefit. So I encourage you with that. Um, so we have a lunch after this. I don't know when after this. It's usually pretty soon. It's ham and potatoes au gratin. And uh, actually it actually took me about 40 years to know what al gratin mean. It's really cheesy goodness. That's what al gratin I think it's French for cheesy goodness. 
<laughs> but that's a, that's a lovingly prepared meal for us. So if you'd like to join us for that, you're welcome to. Uh, but let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your loving kindness. Lord, thank you for providing food for us to fellowship around. Lord, I pray that we would realize that, uh, and I don't know how to say it, Lord, that we would take to heart that you love us and that even though we've done nothing to earn it, that you've placed great value upon our souls. I pray, Lord, that we would be those that by the leading and the power of your spirit say no to ourselves more and more and yes to you. I pray we'd more and more heed your calling in our life. I pray we'd go out of this place more like Jesus than we walked in. I pray, Lord, that you'd just bless the folks here. I pray as we go our separate ways or we go to eat together, whatever it is, that your spirit would go with us and that we would go with your spirit. Your, your presence would be in our homes. That we'd be a calming, hopeful presence to the lost and to one another. And I pray, Lord, that you would do great things in our church and great things in our community as we strive together for the faith of the gospel. Thank you for being so merciful to us. We appreciate it. And pray for your uh, blessing. Thanks for food. In Jesus' name, amen. And God bless you guys.